Laudetur Jesus Christus, praise be Jesus Christ. Hello, this is Father Nathan Dale coming to you on Sunday, March 29th, um, what is traditionally called Passion Sunday. And in um, many centuries, the church has had the tradition to, on this Sunday, to veil all the images of Christ. If you ever watching it, walked into a Catholic church, all the crosses and the statues and everything is veiled in purple. And it actually comes from the last line of the gospel, not this, uh, not the regular Sunday gospel that we hear today, but, um, what's traditionally been read of John, uh, chapter eight, when Christ professes his divine nature to the Pharisees saying, before Abraham was, I am. And it says that the Jews took up stones to throw at him and he hides himself and he no longer preached in the temple. So this idea of Christ hiding himself, um, the church has taken up the tradition to veil all the images as now he goes towards the passion. So I kind of, I want to talk about that in today's Sunday reflection, why God hides himself. There's uh, two reasons that we can look at it, but it, I want to focus primarily on the second one. The idea of veiling Christ is also the veiling of his divinity. So just a couple of weeks ago, we, we celebrated the transfiguration of Christ. Christ reveals his divine nature, that he is God in the flesh, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He revealed that to his disciples on Mount Tabor, but is also in a way to strengthen them when he's going to veil his divinity in his passion, when he goes to the cross on Calvary, right? And that's why even Peter denied Christ. He didn't recognize him in his weakness, right? So at times Christ veils himself, uh, his, his, especially in his passion. Um, he veiled himself in weakness. And so no one would have assumed that that was God you know, uh, bleeding and dying and being beaten and rejected. And so two weeks ago, we celebrated the Mount Tabor, the, when Christ reveals himself and then Calvary is when God in the flesh veils himself, even, um, under the veil of death. There's a second reason though. Why does Christ hide himself? Why does Christ veil himself? Well, it's to increase our desire. Mainly, when we fail to recognize him, when we fail to love him and to receive him, the best thing that he can do for us is to hide himself so as to increase our longing for him. So in that gospel, Jesus reveals himself before Abraham was, I am, and they rejected him. They said, who are you to ever say that you are greater than our father Abraham? And they wanted to kill him. So Christ hides himself. He veils himself so as to increase their longing for him. You know, I, I always think about one of the saddest um, experiences I got to see was one man who, so many years ago, I went to a funeral, and uh, there was this old man. He'd been married over 50 years to his wife, but what I had heard from his family is that the majority of that time he spent um, working and in the evenings at the bars. Uh, he came home one day, and uh, his wife um, had died of a heart attack in their house. And his final words were, you know, that I, I'd heard from him was, 
I didn't love her while I had her. I didn't love her while I had her with me. And, and how many times does that happen in our own lives? Where we don't realize what we've really possessed until we lose it. And that incredible realization that I'll never get it back again. Right? Well, that's, that's Christ's greatest cry over Jerusalem. You didn't recognize the time of your visitation. This is right before his passion. He, he cries out to, to Jerusalem, 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 you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How many times I yearn to gather your children together as a hen gathers her young under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house will be abandoned, desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will barricade you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't accept me while I was with you. That's why Christ says at one point to the, to the women in Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for your children. When we lose Christ, it's we who lose. God is fullness in himself, but he gives himself only for our good. He makes himself weak only so that he can be accessible to us who were created for him. So he says, when you reject me, do not weep for me. It's weep for your children because it's you, it's I came for your sake. And so he hides himself in order to make us once again realize how much we need him so that we can convert. And so I ask you, let's put on our um, kind of our mystic hats here, because this is this is one of the greatest realizations of mysticism, which in many ways we've lost in our present times. Um, it's really revealed in the Song of Songs, this when Christ reveals himself and hides himself, reveals himself and hides himself. He does it only so that we will come after him. There's a beautiful scene after uh, the betrothal in the central book of the of the scriptures, the Song of Songs, um, when the bridegroom comes to the bride and he, and he says, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And that signifies that Christ comes in poverty. Right? He doesn't come banging on the door. He doesn't come breaking the door down. He totally respects the freedom of the bride. He just says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove. He tries to woo her out. And he speaks of his poverty. My head is, co my head is covered with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Right? And many of the mystic writers have said that this refers much to his passion and to his vulnerability that he took on in his incarnation. So in his incarnation, he comes as a weak, vulnerable child. Um, you think about to the Samaritan woman who represents all of us looking for the water of love in life in the midst of a hot desert. And yet he says to her, give me a drink. He asks for her for a drink only so that he can get her in a position so that he can give her the water that he has to give the Holy Spirit. And on the cross, the apex of that, he begs for our love. Right. And he says, uh, I thirst. I thirst. So he goes 
to the extreme point of poverty only to awaken our desire for him, begging for our love. And nowhere is that more true than in the Eucharist, where day and night Christ waits as a prisoner of love. St. Therese of Lisieux often talked about, about that. You make yourself a prisoner of love for me. And that's what inspired so many nuns, uh, so many young women to enter into the convent. He makes himself a prisoner in love, weak in that tabernacle for me. So I make myself the same for him. I hide myself in these walls so that I can be alone with him who is alone for me, my poverty and his poverty together. So Christ comes, uh, Christ is the bridegroom in the Song of Songs, and he asks the bride to open to him. And this is what's so sad. She, um, she refuses. She says, I have taken off my tunic. Am I to put it on again? I have washed my feet. Am I to dirty them again? So the bride refuses to open to the bridegroom. And that's actually the essence of sin in its very core. It's a refusal to open ourselves to receive the love of God, right? when he comes in all his vulnerability to offer himself to us, when we say no to that. So the Pharisees and the Jews at that time, what that passage represented earlier from John 8 is Jesus reveals himself, he offers himself, and they refuse. They refuse to open to him. They refuse to receive him. They refuse to recognize him. So the best thing that he can do is leave them. Why? To make them realize what they have lost. So at this point uh, in the Song of Songs, it says, My beloved thrust his hand through the door, and I trembled to the core of my being. So that all of a sudden, she wouldn't, he wouldn't open up, she wouldn't open up to him. He thrusts his hand through the door, and she, she quakes, right? So it's almost like uh, something happens to wake her up. Something, some kind of a fear that makes her realize uh, that she has turned him away. So it could be the fear of death. It could be the loss of something dear to us. It, what it really refers to is suffering because nothing wakes us up faster than suffering. When we suffer, we realize something's incredibly wrong, you know, and I need to turn my life around. And so that's why immediately after that, it says, then I rose to open to my beloved. Myrrh ran off my hands, pure myrrh off my fingers on the handle of the bolt and so i don't know you this is definitely uh reading into it but this coronavirus this is something where perhaps christ is thrusting his hand through the door to tremble us to wake us up to the very core of our being so that we then rise up to open once more to him with greater love and devotion but this is kind of the turn in the story because the bride rises up to open and says, I opened to my beloved, but he had turned his back and gone. My soul failed at his flight. So now she realizes how much she loved and needed him, but he's gone. And why did he leave her? Why didn't he thrust his hand through the door and then just stay there until she came to him? Well, because he was trying to draw her out of her home out of her solitary confinement to come after him in this search. So she says, I sought him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. So he hides so that we may seek him. Our hearts pierced with desire so that we run after him. 
And that's the whole goal of the spiritual life, actually, to enter into this movement of love. And that's, that's what desire is. Whatever we desire, we run after. And that's why desire is at the core of love. Once we've lost our desire for something, we've actually lost our love. So uh, John of the Cross, he writes this beautiful little stanza about uh, reflecting on this part from the Song of Songs of when this shepherd comes looking for his bride and she refuses and he says, A lonely shepherd goes in pain, no pleasure or joy for him, for always he thinks about his shepherdess and his heart is heavy with love. He does not weep because of love's wound, for this is not his pain, though pain is gripping his heart. He weeps, thinking himself forgotten. This very thought of being forgotten by a shepherdess is his great pain. He is so outraged in a remote land and heartbroken with love. Alas, says the shepherd, how unhappy the one whose love chases him away so far from her heart. She did not want to enjoy my presence and left my heart so crushed with love. Then, after a long time, slowly, he climbed on a tree, stretched his beautiful arms, and died, held fast by those arms, heartbroken with love. So he always points back that the crucifixion was Christ's final plea for love. After he had come to his people and they refused him, he hides himself, he walks away disappointed, but he doesn't give up. He goes to the extreme point of poverty, um, of self-offering love in order to awaken her, to give her one more chance to come back to her. So I want to say one word about the nature of desire. And desire is the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be human. Because everything's determined by what we desire. And the word desire actually comes from desidere. Uh, Latin, desidere, meaning from the stars. So desire itself is always pointed towards transcendence, meaning that there's nothing on this earth that could ever satisfy our desires. So even within the very word itself is an understanding that nothing here can ever satisfy us. We're made for, for heaven, for more. There's a, a quote I really enjoy by an author. It says, We are not restful creatures who sometimes get restless, fulfilled creatures who sometimes experience disquiet. Rather, we are restless people who occasionally find rest, dissatisfied people who occasionally find fulfillment, and disquieted people who occasionally find serenity. Because at the center of our lives is a fiery energy, a perpetual disquiet, a lingering loneliness, an inexpressible ache for something we can never quite name. So we're always longing for more. Even a psychiatrist uh, said, um, he was an atheist, but he still said, with all his patience, he talked about a fire without a focus that burns at the center of our lives and pushes us out in a relentless and unquenchable pursuit of something more. So desire is meant to take us towards transcendence and actually the greatest which which means we're made for that right because we can only desire that which we're predestined to have i desire water because i'm made to drink it if i drink mountain dew um when i'm thirsty it's not going to satisfy me 
right? Because that's not what my thirst is made for. My thirst is made for water and my hunger for food, right? So every desire has a proper end to it. So if I desire transcendence in my very core of my being, it's because I'm made for transcendence. So desire reflects our destiny. And that's the greatest, uh, that's actually reveals what sin is. Because sin, something they call curvy toss, to be curved in on oneself. It's where I do not allow my desires to find their proper end in God, but I get so consumed with the things of this world that then I turn, I fall into myself um, and lose myself in the desire for things here. When desire should take me towards, always towards God. This was St. Augustine's fundamental experience. You know how he said that famous long, You created us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless. And that's the difficulty, stay, staying within that restlessness. And this is one thing that he wrote about in his confessions. He said, Turn us again, O Lord, God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. For wheresoever the soul of man turns itself, unless towards thee it is enmeshed in sorrows, even though it is surrounded by beautiful things outside of thee and outside itself, for lovely things would simply not be unless they were from thee. Let my soul praise thee in all these things, O God, creator of all. But let not my soul be stuck to these things of the earth by the glue of love, through the senses of the body, for they go where they were meant to go, that they may exist no longer, and they rend the soul with pestilent desires, because she longs to be, and yet loves to rest secure in the created things she loves. But in these things there is no resting place to be found. They do not abide, they flee away, and who is he who can follow them with his physical senses? And so he's pointing to such a deep, uh, profound experience for all of us that as much as I love the things of this world, persons or created objects, nothing ever remains. It's always changing and it's always fleeing. Right? There's nothing that's absolutely permanent. So the more I love these things, my, my heart falls away with them. So the mystic is the one, in a sense, who allows themselves to feel the deepest depths of human desire and chooses to stay in the pain of wanting more than this life has to offer. So instead of fulfilling ourselves with everything that comes along, we stay in the pain of longing. And that's exactly why Christ hides himself. He shows himself as, I am the one you, you long for, that you truly desire. But then he hides himself so that we'll be reminded of that. And we'll learn to start running after him again, to reorient our deepest desires towards God. So right now, the church is going through a very profound veiling. Far more than just veiling crucifixes and tabernacles and, and uh, statues and images. We can't even go into our churches right now. We can't even receive the sacraments. This is one of the most profound veilings we've seen since the Passion of Christ. But it should make us ask ourselves, did I really visit? Did I take time? Did I recognize Christ in the time of, the, of his visitation? Did I appreciate him when he was here? How often did I go to the church 
to spend time with the prisoner of love in the holy tabernacle? How much time did I spend with him in silent prayer before his Eucharistic face when, I, when the doors were open? How often did I go to receive his mercy and forgiveness and confession when the opportunity was there? Or did on Sundays, was Mass just one thing I had to get through in the morning? Or was it the most important part of my day around which everything else was pointed? Now that we can't go. So when we're losing these things, God only takes away so that he can give back even more. Right? St. Augustine, he said that the, the soul is composed of desire. Like the substance of our soul is desire. And that God's entire plan, um, kind of a lover's tryst with us, is that he feeds us a little bit, then he leaves so that our, our hearts, our desires grow more and more. Our souls stretch so that they can be filled with even more of himself next time. right? And so God is hiding himself in a very profound way in our times right now, only so that he can increase our longing for him. That's always his goal, to save us by increasing our longing for him, to find our love in him alone. And I want to end with a few words by Julian of Norwich, um, a mystic uh, from from the Middle Ages. Christ appeared to her once and he said these words. He goes, I am the light and the grace, which is sacred love. I am the Trinity. I am the unity. I am the supreme goodness of all things. I am the one who makes you love. I am the one who makes you desire. I am the never-ending fulfillment of all true desires. And she says, After this our Lord showed himself more glorified as to my sight. than I saw him before wherein I learned that our soul shall never have rest till it come to him, knowing that he is fullness of joy. And our Lord oftentimes said to me, I it am, I it am, I it am that is highest, I it am that thou lovest, I it am that thou enjoy, I it am that thou serve, I it am that thou longest for, I it am that thou desire, I it am that thou mean when you desire other things, I it am that is all. I it am that holy church preaches and teaches to thee. I it am that showed myself here to thee at this moment. That I it am, it's, it's me. It's me. I am the one that's highest. I'm the one that you love. I'm the one that you serve. I'm the one that you long for. I'm the one that you desire. I'm the one that you mean to want when you want all these creatures in the world. Right? And that's why God goes away. That's why he hides himself to help us to realize that there's nothing and no one else in this world that could ever satisfy our desires until him. And by this way, he increases our longing and our capacity to receive him when he comes back. Let us end with a wonderful prayer by St. Augustine. Late have I loved you, O beauty, so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you, for behold, you were within me and I outside. And I sought you outside, and in my ugliness I fell upon those lovely things that you have made. You were with me, and I was not with you. I was kept from you by those lovely things. Yet had they not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called and cried out to me and broke open my deafness. 
You sent forth your light and shone upon me and chased away my blindness. You breathed fragrance upon me and I drew in my breath. I do now pant for you. You touched me and I have burned for your peace. Lord Jesus, as you hide yourself in these times, give me the grace to truly long for you as I've never longed for you before, to desire you and to love you and to run after you with all the strength of my heart and soul. Amen.